This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Monday marked 50 years since the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its landmark decision in the case of Miranda versus Arizona. In their decision, the justices established that all criminal suspects must be advised of their right to remain silent before being interrogated by police. It's a right provided by the Fifth Amendment. Today, Where We Live, we find out more about the story behind our right to remain silent. Tejas Bott joins me in studio. He's an assistant public defender from Hartford. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First of all, Tejas, welcome to where we live. Thanks, Lucy. It's a pleasure to be back. So in our opening for the show, um, we played a cut from the film adaptation of 21 Jump Street. And um, just to kind of show that often we hear about Miranda rights from the shows we watched growing up, the movies we um, saw. And um, you had an interesting anecdote when we met a few uh, weeks ago about growing up in India and how you learned about uh, Miranda rights. Right. So I I actually I grew up in India and I moved here uh, 16 years ago. So growing up, I didn't know I didn't have exposure to Miranda rights. My exposure to interactions between the police and suspects, and they were almost always guilty, and the police were the good guys, um, was the third-degree interrogations, where the cops would beat the suspects. They would take their belt off and hang them from the ceiling and, and, um, and beat confessions out of them. And then I moved to the U.S. for law school. And even then, in law school, my first exposure to Miranda rights was popular culture. I'm sure most of your listeners and everybody in the United States is well aware of Law and Order, mm-hmm. and it's four different um, iterations, and and that's what everybody knows. You know, the the cop arresting the suspect, putting him in the back of the car, and then they start saying, um, "You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you." And that's sort of where I learned that there was this thing called Miranda rights before I even knew what they were, and I suspect. A lot of people who don't go to law school, that's where they get their information about Miranda rights from, is TV shows, movies like 21 Jump Street, any cop procedural. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's how it's become part of our collective consciousness. Let's find out more about the man behind Miranda versus Arizona. Can you briefly tell us about Ernesto Miranda? So from, from what I've learned, Ernesto was um, a Mexican who lived – in Arizona, he uh, didn't do much of note until he was arrested for kidnapping and uh, forcibly, well, I think, raping a woman. Um, and the the story goes that he was then interrogated for a number of hours. Uh, he was forced to sign a confession, and um, they, the Supreme Court of the United States, took his case up with three others, where there were similar arguments that they were sort of forced to give these confessions without knowing what, what they were doing. Um, the the anecdote of him after the fact is that um, the Supreme Court obviously reversed his conviction. They instituted the Miranda rights, and so he gets a new trial. He gets reconvicted, he serves his time, and he gets out. And by that point, he's become a bit of a celebrity because every police officer has their Miranda rights card. And so he goes around making a small living autographing them, uh, one day he gets into a fight and he gets stabbed himself and he's, he gets killed. And the individual who's the suspect gets arrested by police, but by now they have the Miranda rights. So the suspect gets read his Miranda rights and he invokes his right to remain silent and does not give a confession. They don't have enough against him and they have to let him go. Wow. <laughs> Talk about full circle. Absolutely. The, the irony of that is quite amusing. Um, 
the guy who was instrumental in getting these rights instituted for all of us, uh, himself ended up without justice because the person who killed him had to be let, let go free. Um, when we look at the 1966 Supreme Court decision, um, talk about um, why the justices ruled the way they did, um, obviously based on the Fifth Amendment. Is that right? That's right. It is the Fifth Amendment. And in the Fifth Amendment, there is the clause that we um, shall have the privilege to be free from self-incrimination, which means we can't be forced to give testimony against ourselves. Um, and, and the 66 decision, Miranda versus Arizona and the three others that came with it, were sort of the culmination of a long history of these decisions that the Supreme Court had been issuing, uh, part of it was the idea that um, you can't force people to give confessions, and that undermines sort of the sanctity of the system. They were concerned about beating confessions out of people. Um, there were a number of decisions that came before it, and start. I think the the notable one is Brown versus Mississippi. I think it was in 1939, um, and that's a it's a pretty horrible story. And that, and then there were, I think there were six or seven others before 1966, which all involved um, African-American suspects in the South. And they were all suspected of uh, killing white people. And so so the guy in Brown versus Mississippi, if I can just tell the, the story of that, is a guy named Ellington, I think. And um, the sheriff in the South suspected that he had uh, been involved in, in killing a, a white person. So... The, the sheriff and people from the victim's family went to this guy's house. They just went to his door. And they said, um, you know, you, you have to confess to this crime. And he said, well, I didn't, I didn't do it. So they dragged him to the, one of the victim's houses. Uh, they beat him. And he didn't confess. And then they tied him up. And he didn't confess. And then they took him out into a yard. And they hung him from a tree. And they beat him again. And they said, well, you have to confess. And he says, I didn't do it. So they let him down. They give him another chance to confess, and he doesn't. And so this repeats until they keep beating him, and he refuses to confess. Finally, they let him go home. Two days later, the deputy goes back under the guise of arresting him. Um, on the way to the, to the courthouse, which is, or the station house, which is in Mississippi, they go through Alabama. And then he's in another state, takes him out of the car, and relentlessly beats him again and says, I'm not going to let you go until you confess. And so finally, Ellington confesses. He gets arrested. He's actually tried and convicted by a jury in a matter of two days after his arrest. That, and then there were seven other cases uh, between 39 and 66 where there were African-American defendants who were forced to confess by beating or other coercion or torture by white deputies in the South. And the Supreme Court reversed all of those until... Finally, in 1966, they issued this Miranda decision saying, not only do you have to give a confession voluntarily, but before police can start asking you questions, they have to tell you what your rights are. And so that's the backdrop uh, to which Miranda came about. So Miranda rights changed police procedure in the U.S. I was reading that, obviously, civil libertarians viewed this as a victory for individual rights, but you had the critics on the other side saying this undermines the efforts of law enforcement officials. Yeah, there's always that um, side to it because what people tend to think and critics tend to think in a sense are that it, it hinders the ability of police to catch the guilty. 
if you are guilty and the police tell you that anything you say can be used against you and you don't have to speak, then most people will will not. Um, I, I will say as a public defender, reality is quite different. I have seen a vast number of cases that I've represented where the only thing that people have, the, the prosecution has uh, evidence of guilt is my client's confession. Uh, and that is despite being Mirandized and given their warnings. But I think the idea we have to keep in mind is that these rights apply to all of us. Mm-hmm. And they apply to all of us regardless of whether the, whether we're innocent or whether we're, we're guilty. We can't start deciding that the constitutional rights don't apply to some people just because we have determined in advance that they have committed a crime. Um, my advice to everybody is that if the police want to question you about something, don't answer the questions. Get a lawyer. Um, because even though you think that you have done nothing wrong, um, you don't know what laws there are out there. You don't know what you might end up getting arrested for. Um, and that's and that's why I think the safeguards exist not to protect the guilty but to protect the innocent. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that, that you know, take a look at all our, our landmark decisions. They don't come about in the cases of innocent people. Um, you know, Miranda... As, as I just said, was uh, a rapist and a kidnapper. Um, Gideon versus Wainwright, which established the right to counsel or right to an attorney for all poor people. He was a, a robber and a pool shark. Um, these are not upstanding citizens. But if we start saying that these rights don't apply to them, then they would never apply to us. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Tejas Bott, assistant public defender from Hartford. We're looking back at 50 years since uh, the Miranda versus Arizona decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, which gave us Miranda rights. Um, I had a, just a question for you procedurally. So if someone um, is arrested and they're not Mirandized, what happens to their case? Right. So that's, that's a great question because that comes up all the time. And I hear this from clients. You know, I got arrested, but they didn't Mirandize me. So they didn't read me my rights. So they got to throw the case out. That's not true. So the only time the police have to actually read you these rights is if they're going to question you about the crime, if they're going to interrogate you. Um, They don't have to do it if they're just going to ask you routine booking questions. And that's what you see a lot of, frankly, is, uh, you know, they they, they arrest somebody, they take them to the the police station, they're fingerprinting them or, or getting their information, and the guy just blurts out and says, well, I did, you know, I... I didn't do it or or I did it, but but I was desperate or something. And, and, and then they say, well, I was being interviewed and they didn't read me my rights. Well, no, they weren't questioning you. So if, if the police aren't questioning you, they don't have to read you your rights. If they are questioning you and they don't read you the rights, um, then the st- the, any confession has to be suppressed. And so, so that's sort of the, the quirk of this, which a lot of people aren't really aware of. But I get that a lot. So you're an assistant public defender. You represent dozens, if not hundreds, of people a year. Um, talk about a little bit more about, I know you have attorney-client privilege, but in terms of just background, do people understand the Miranda rights and why they're there? That's, um, I think some do. I think a lot of people don't. And I think that's why it's the, the question of whether a confession can be used against someone is not limited to just whether the Miranda rights have been given because I see a lot of people who have read their rights and and now with the advent of all interrogations being videotaped it's a it's a great boon because you can watch this happen in in sort of real time as it were you sit there and you watch them and they read these rights and 
you know that it takes longer to read than they're taking on the video. But a lot of people will skim them. A lot of people feel the pressure of being in a interrogation room in a police station. And they know that um, they're going to be pressured into talking. And so they go through the motions. I think a lot of them know what the rights are but are afraid to exercise them. I think that's the greater concern. Um, you know, unless you're completely illiterate, I think people will read them and they'll sort of have this awareness, as we all do, of what the rights are. But but I think there's a gap between understanding and having the knowledge and wherewithal to exercise those rights. Because that, in that environment, it's a very difficult thing to do. You're, you're talking about that environment. So we hear about the stories of people that have you know, gone to jail for years because of false confessions. You know, talk about what that interaction is between someone who may be intimidated and you know, the police are an authority figure and you know, because of the circumstance, they admit to something they didn't do. I mean, can you talk about how that interchange happens? Right. And, and so there's a, there's a very famous uh, method of inter- interrogations that the police use. It's called the Reed method. It was, it's like a nine-step process. And it's, uh, it's basically psychological torture in a sense. Um, what they do is they don't threaten people anymore. They don't harm them. They do is they pressure them. And they use this, this, this method. So you go essentially what, how, how it usually happens is when someone is brought in for questioning, they, the police bring them there, which means that they have no direct means of leaving. They're reliant on the police to leave or they have to call somebody to come and get them which means, in essence, they're sort of captive. Now, they're told you're free to leave at any time you want. But if you've just taken me to the police station that's 8, 10 miles from my home without my car, how am I going anywhere? They're usually windowless, small rooms with a small table, two police officers, and the suspect sitting up against the wall. Um, Some questionings will go on for hours, two hours, three hours, four. There's some cases where they've gone on for 9 or 12 hours of questioning, um, you know, you offer, I'm your friend, let me get you some water, I'll get you some food. Um, they use tactics which include outright lies. And that's another thing. Police are allowed to lie to you when they question you. So they will say, we've got DNA. We know it's you. We've got four eyewitnesses who put you at the scene. We just want to hear your side of the story. And when you're faced with 12 hours of questioning, you're away from Let's say your children. You don't know where they are. Your family. They don't know where you are. Um, The police keep telling you, you've done it. You've done it. We can help you if you just confess. A lot of people will break down. A lot of people will say, okay, this is my way out. Mm -hmm. My way out of this predicament is to tell them what they want to hear. And if I do it, they'll help me and I'll get to go home again. And the other important thing to remember is that a vast majority or a large percentage of people who end up in our criminal justice system have substance abuse or mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And they are easier to, and, and, and I use the word prey, but not in a nefarious way, but they're easier to manipulate. They're easier to um, uh, mold and pressure into giving false confessions. And police are aware of that. And the bad ones take advantage of that. The good ones don't. But the bad ones do. And that's how you end up with people who falsely confess. And you're absolutely right. If you look at the Innocence Project and their website, they have statistics. And a large percentage of false convictions involve false confessions. 
We just have a couple more minutes, Tejas. Um, but, you know, looking back at the 50 years uh, um, and obviously your role as an assistant public defender, I mean, where do you see um, that reform and change needs to happen so that the innocent aren't thrown in jail? Wow. Um, I th- question. <laughs> it is a big question, and I think it's a it's a it's a broad question. Mm-hmm. But in terms of Miranda, I think the problems with it are that we're our courts are sort of restricting its application. They're they're carving out exceptions, um, and and even beyond Miranda, the question is how do we stop people who are vulnerable from giving false confessions? Miranda is a great step. You must be clear to everybody what their rights are. Um, I think. What you see a lot of are, are interrogators not really honoring that request. You know, if they, people ask vague questions, can I get a lawyer? Should I have my lawyer here? I think the, the right thing to do is to interpret that as, as a right, as, as an invocation, not say, well, you can have a lawyer, but then it won't help you and sort of deflect the question. I think we got to remember that a lot of people who get caught up are vulnerable and that our rights should be absolute when it comes to that. Um, I think we're going to have to look at how juveniles are treated. I know you've done some some work into that, uh, into looking at juveniles in our system. And juveniles are especially vulnerable. And we have uh, statutes in our books that are sort of very uh, counterintuitive when it comes to confessions of juveniles. If you're a juvenile and you're in, in, interrogated by police but you're not advised of your of certain rights, um, that statement is not al- allowed to be used against you in juvenile court. But if you are then transferred to adult court, that statement is now suddenly admissible. And it's backwards. It doesn't make any sense. You know, our courts and our and our legislators need to look at that a little closer and say, how are we protecting the 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds from succumbing to the pressures of, of police interrogations? And I mean, can't imagine anyone more vulnerable, 15, 16-year-olds sitting in a police station with a with a guardian sitting there saying, you better tell them the truth or, you know, you if you don't cooperate with them, you're going to go away for a long time. And and that's really not helpful to our youth. So, yeah, I'm speaking with Connecticut public defender Tejas Bott about the 50th anniversary of Miranda versus Arizona. The landmark Supreme Court case guaranteed the right of an individual to remain silent. If arrested, you can read Tejas's blog at criminalopinions.wordpress.com and also some other interesting reading about the history behind Miranda versus Arizona. We'll tweet that link out on our uh, Twitter at Where We Live. Tejas, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we look at food insecurity in Connecticut and across the country. New data is out. It may surprise you. This is Where We Live. Stand up for your Get up, stand up. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We tend to think about the people in our communities who don't have enough to eat around the holidays, but it's a problem that exists year-round. New national data finds that 85% of food-insecure households with children are headed by adults who work. And one-third of food-insecure households have annual incomes of at least two times the federal poverty level. We'll hear more about the national data later in the hour. We wanted to check in with the Connecticut Food Bank to find out about food insecurity in our state. The food bank provides food to those in need through a network of community-based programs like soup kitchens, food pantries, and shelters. 
You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome Bernie Baudreau, CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank, to where we live. Thank you. Nice being here. I understand that um, you're fairly new in the Connecticut job, right? I am new. Um, I just completed my fourth week on the job and uh, really enjoying it very much. Connecticut is a beautiful state. I'm getting to know a lot of the people. It's, it's a great place to be. Great. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, because of your experience helping those in need, um, explain the term food insecure, what, or in food insecurity. What does it mean to be food insecure? Well, in, in simple terms, it means not really knowing where your next meal is going to come from and being in that condition from time to time. Um, it is actually a measure that's been developed over the last 25 years. Um, the U.S. Census Bureau um, does a survey of 65,000 households every year, randomly selected, and um, basically asks a, a battery of 13 questions that gets at the problem of really unable to really uh, plan their week-long meals and actually experiencing missing meals. So sometimes the members of the family that miss meals um, that's a smaller percentage, but in, in Connecticut, uh, 13% of the population is actually food insecure. And, um, you know, this meaning, it, it really means that people worry about, you know, being able to feed their families and, uh, and children worry about whether they're going to get food for supper. And um, uh, sadly, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of families are missing meals. Um, you mentioned 13 percent of Connecticut residents at some point have been uh, food insecure, so that's about 473,000 people, according to your website. That's a lot of people, that's a lot almost of people. a half a million people. How has that uh, percentage changed over the years? We A lot of attention, of course, was on the recession. What's happened in the years since? Well, um, the recession that hit the country um, propels uh, people who are marginal uh, and lose jobs into food insecure situations. So uh, there is an uptick in food insecurity when the recession uh, happens and when there's high unemployment. Uh, but it's pretty much constant with the level of poverty we have in our country. Um, food insecurity is related to income, low incomes, and, and poverty. And um, you know what we have seen uh, in the last three years from 2012 to 2014 an actual uh, reduction in about 25,000 people in Connecticut. Uh, there are fewer. Uh, they went from, um, you know, uh, 498 to 472. Mm -hmm. So that's good, it's, but it's only a 5% reduction. And um, my assumption is that many more people were employed in that period of time than 25,000. Mm -hmm. It's sort of bouncing back from the recession. So you have a situation where the recession is not lifting all boats. I mean, the rising tide is not lifting all boats. There are people that are uh, stuck in a situation of, uh, of poverty. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly how the Connecticut Food Bank works with its member organizations. How many are there around the state? How do you get the food to the people who need it? Yes, I mean, um, Connecticut Food Bank is part of Feeding America. Feeding America is um, organized uh, out of, out of um, Chicago. Yeah, there are almost 300 food banks in the country. Uh, major food banks in Connecticut are FoodShare, based in Hartford and Tallinn County, and Connecticut Food Bank, the remaining six counties. So together, we get food from various sources and distribute that food from, through um, really hundreds of outlets uh, from very tiny uh, food pantries and food closets to well-organized uh, nonprofit organizations that combine food distribution with 
the kind of other services that people need to kind of get back on their feet, counseling and job training and job placement. So it's a, it's a wide range. We also distribute food uh, directly uh, from a uh, fresh produce distribution program, uh, the mobile food pantry. And we go uh, to a number of places in uh, urban areas in particular and distribute food directly to people in need. Um, we wanted to get some personal stories from people who've, you know, actually experienced food insecurity. Uh, one of them is uh, Renee Cody. Um, I understand that she um, is getting help from a, a member program of the Connecticut Food Bank called Masters Mana. Renee, welcome to where we live. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for calling in. And I wanted to go back to something that uh, Bernie was saying in terms of the recession um, and how we've seen the number um, in Connecticut, you know, while it's, there's been a little bit of an improvement, there are still people um, that are in need of help. And I think you're one of those people who lost their job um, in the recession. And what's happened since? Yes. Um, I was actually, I can tell you, the last day I worked was February 19, 2008. I was pregnant and um, one of the only sole providers in my household with my husband being out of work also um, it, 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 it just, it hurt us really bad, you know, and, and being, a, having the fear of not knowing where your next meal is and having a newborn and not knowing where to go and where to turn. And I, I mean, I was quite, quite stubborn and I, you know, I walked through the doors of Master's Man and Master's Man is that is a lifeline that, you know, unfortunately, it, it's not getting any better, like you said. Um, um, since then, my, my husband, thank, thankfully, thankfully, has uh, found employment where he makes a, a, a decent living wage. I still can't uh, find employment anywhere because it's just being out of work for so long and trying and trying and trying and then having also a child trying to find something that fits. Um it's it's just it's it's really tough. <laughs> can I ask how you, can I ask how you found Masters Mana? This is a human service program in Meriden. Well, well, we're based out of Wallingford. We serve okay. Meriden and surrounding towns too. So, um, I, I my son was about three weeks old. We were currently we're not where we were now at Forty Six North Plains in Wallingford. Um, they were had a small little storefront. And I finally summed up the courage and said, you know what, I, I need help. Um, as, as, as little as it may sound, I'm diapers for my son. And I walked in, and just to see in that small little, I want to say 400-square storefront, the line that was out the door and down the street and around the corner. And when I saw in, Cheryl Straczynski saw me, and she just came in with my head down. I wanted diapers. And that was it. And she pulled me aside and she said, we're here for you. What do you need? And, and of course, then I just fell to the ground sobbing and crying, saying, I need food for me and my husband. I need diapers and whatever you can give me for my son. So... And Renee, part of why we wanted to speak with you is, you know, so often there's a perception out there. Well, that's not going to happen to me. I mean, I've, you know, I, I'm secure, and you know, I don't mm -hmm. have, a, I don't have a problem feeding my children, my family. But we never know when the other shoe's going to drop, when we may lose a job, when someone gets a, a long-term illness. Um, you know, do you find that there are other residents that you've met um, since 2008 that are in your shoes? You never thought you'd be in this uh, situation, and this is where you need the most help. Yeah, and. and 
and this is what I've always I always say to everybody: it's amazing who you see because it it happens it happens to everybody. I was one of that percentage. I came from um, New Haven, Connecticut, with you know a single mother trying to make it, at, at, you know, in a time in the late seventies, early eighties, um, and it's so many people that are there. It's your believe it or not, it's your son's teacher. It could be your son's soccer coach, your daughter's cheerleading coach, your daughter's dance instructor. It's it's absolutely everybody. And it, and when I see them, I tell them I'm in the same boat as you. I, I, you know, I just may have a smile on my face and I have a shoulder, you know, my shoulders back. And it's because of Masters Manor that they gave me the confidence in myself to say, you know what, you need help. Yes, were you one of those that it happened to? But now it's time to give back. And I, and I always say to all the, the clients there, if I can get out of the fire, you're going to be able to get out of the fire. And, and you see it. Their, their shoulders go back. Their heads go up. You know, and, and they understand that, wow, there's you, of all people, you, <laughs> are, are in the same boat. And look at Yes, it took a while to us to, to tread. As, as I say, we're, we're still treading water. But our head, you know, at least our nose is above the, the water line. Mm-hmm. In studio with me is CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank, Bernie Baudreau. Um, so we're hearing Renee's story, Bernie. Um, can you tell, talk a little bit more about the people in Connecticut um, that are that need help, like Renee? Again, mm-hmm. there's a perception out there. Well, there's uh, you know there's people that are affected by this. It's not me. It's not my neighbor. It's not somebody at school that my my child um, goes to school with. But who are the people that are struggling? Um, Renee, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean. You uh, represent the 60% of the people that are served by this network who have someone in the family who's working. And uh, that's the discouraging part, that when you do find a job, often the the job does not pay enough to kind of meet your expenses. So you're still food insecure. In fact, uh, 45% of the people that we serve through our network of food pantries like Master's Mana um, are not eligible for any other government kind of support. They're not eligible for SNAP or food stamps. They're not eligible for public assistance because, because their incomes are just mm-hmm. above. But, of course, their incomes are not enough to kind of make sure there's enough food on the table. Uh, one of the first places I visited uh, was Master's Manor. And, um, you know, Renee's among uh, a whole group of people who are helped by that place. But she turns and helps the others. Uh, she volunteers there. She's, uh, she's Like she said, she brings people along and say, you know, there's no shame in what's going on here. A lot of people are in this boat, and we're here to support you. And um, I've seen uh, different places do some incredible work just in the four weeks I've been here. Um, treating people with dignity and respect is so important uh, because everybody's got a story, and they're not all the same. Some people are, are not able to work um, but most um, have looking for a chance to get out of their bind and food uh, is is essential for that process. And increasingly, uh, we're trying to get highly nutritious food, um, uh, fresh produce, and uh, the food industry has been very generous in that respect. But again, thank you, Renee, for being um, um, telling the story that so many uh, people can relate to um, out there. And if you're hearing this story, and uh, you know you're. You're being stubborn and denying, you know, uh, yourself the help or your family the help. Please don't. There are many helping um, agencies out there, and they will treat you well and uh, help you get back on your feet. 
Well, Bernie, you said something earlier that a lot of people who need help are unable to work. But my understanding is when we talk about SNAP, isn't that a requirement that they have to um, have a job or trying to find work to get those benefits? Isn't that a problem with the way the program is set up? Yeah, there's been an increasing trend in, in state policies around food assistance. I'm not familiar with Connecticut's policy requiring work or public service. Um, but that really um, that makes it doubly difficult. If you're requiring people to put in public service for getting a benefit, then you're taking them away from their ability to get that job they need or job training to get a job. So it's, it's a kind of a – it doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it's necessary, and I think it um, – it's it's saying you owe society something, you know, to to have to do that, and uh, everybody wants to pull their own weight. You know, very few people are taking advantage of a system uh, that's trying to help out. People don't like standing in lines. It's not a pleasant experience, and there are lines that uh, that form in the coldest of days in the winter. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about food insecurity in Connecticut. Later, we're going to find out what's happening nationwide. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. Have you experienced food insecurity? That means not having trouble finding food to put on your family's table. Uh, do you work with those who have um, experienced this issue? 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. I want to take a call now from Marshall in Hartford. Marshall, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I just want to um, briefly uh, um, share observation with you and the listeners. Um, when I was out of work for a while, uh, I was going through the food share in the Hartford area, and they would have them in different locations on, on uh, different days. What I started noticing was there would be uh, people representing, and I don't, I'm not going to say where, but uh, different restaurants in, in throughout the city. And they would come to the food chairs and then bring the food back to the restaurants. And I guess they would turn around and sell them to the general public. And I was just curious if there was any way of, or if there's any safeguards to make sure that the food really gets to the people that really need it. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Marshall, for your call. A good question. Bernie, can you answer that? Well, I, I can't answer, you know, why that happens. I mean, people uh, do take advantage of situations. I know Food Share and Connecticut Food Bank, we have very strict standards in terms of our membership to um, Feeding America. We have to have monitoring take place. We have uh, staff that go out and uh, account for things. Uh, so we're, you know, we're, we're assured that most and the vast majority of every pound that goes out our food banks uh, gets to people in need. But there's always uh, the possibility that someone can beat the system and so we're sorry about that, and uh, you know we uh, we don't want to spend more dollars uh, to try to get to the one percent that may be taken advantage. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to factor that in that some if some small percentage uh, is not going to get to where it needs. Uh, we're going to focus on uh, moving the food further and and faster to those who do need the food. Uh, Renee, I wanted to go back to you. Renee Cody, a client of Masters Mana, a human service program in Meriden. Um, she's been good enough to share her personal story about, um, you know, reaching a point in her life after losing a job. Um, her husband also struggling um, now that he's working. That's a great thing. But, you know, at some point um, you needed help and you were able to find that through Masters Mana. Um, but food insecurity isn't just about... Um, 
you know, being able to to find um, meals to feed your family. There's other stress that goes along uh, with it that impacts your health. Can you talk about that, Renee? Yes. Um, while, while all this was going on, you know, ra- raising my son and also at, struggling looking for work during the recession um, and and everything else, worrying about house bills and everything that goes along with it, we ended up being evicted twice, almost. And because of all the stress at 33, I had a heart attack mm. from um, the stress of just wondering where where am I going to get money for the lights and where am I going to money for the rent and where are we going to live? And, and just being in that, that limbo of you, you qualify for this, but you don't qualify for that because you make maybe $5 too much, you know, and it, and it, and it, it really, really weighed on, on me. And then I ended up having a heart attack and being in Hartford hospital because of this distress and the load of loan of trying to say, okay, house or food and, and you really shouldn't ever have to come to that situation, house or food. Um, any um, reflection on programs? I know we were talking about SNAP, which is the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, Renee. But any programs in the state that are helping you or now that we are hearing about um, budget cuts across the board, um, programs yeah. that are impacted here in Connecticut? Um and that was that was one thing after I had had you know rested from and healed from having my heart attack. I said, you know what, I have to be proactive, and I have to go find these programs. Um, there's the energy assistance that was at New Opportunities in, in, in Meriden. Um, they will set up. Um, you get money, a certain a stipend, a stipend amount of money towards your back bill. Um, and it keeps the lights on, you know, so we qualified for that. And, and then it was, you know, the, you know, there's just, there's so many programs out there that, and, and the shame is with these budget cuts, they're, they're drying up and or disappearing. And these, these are ones that I, I see on a daily basis with everybody that comes walking in. They're like, well, well, where can I go? If, you know, I need oil for, you know, for hot water, because you still need oil, even though you heat with it, you still need to have hot water. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and to say, to be able to, I have that information and be able to say, you know, possibly go down to new opportunities, hand them, you know, the phone number and say, and here's the address and say, and just go down and see what happens, you know, cause, but with the money that's drying up, the award amounts are getting smaller and smaller, which then you're taking from your food budget. And you're taking from your rent and, 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 and all these other things that are necessities for you to live. Um, well, I really you know, there's but oh, I'm sorry, Renee, um, we're almost out of time for this segment, but I really appreciate you sharing your story with us here. Uh, on where we live. Again, Renee Cody, a client of Masters Mana, a human service program in Meriden. We're going to talk more about um, the programs that exist out there, and we're going to take a, a nationwide look at food insecurity. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up on Thursday's show, as heroin-related deaths surge in Connecticut and nationwide, we sit down with two mothers whose children struggled with addiction. We'll also find out how a network of recovered addicts and heroin users in Hartford are taking matters into their own hands to prevent overdoses. That's on Thursday. 
You can join the conversation today. We're talking about food insecurity in Connecticut and nationwide. The number, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, WMPR.org, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So who is food insecure? Often the perception is a person or family that lives below the poverty line, but new data shows that one-third of households that have trouble putting food on the table have annual incomes of at least two times the federal poverty level. Why is this significant? Because these working households can have trouble qualifying for the federal supplemental nutrition assistance program known as SNAP and other food support programs like subsidized school meals. In studio with me is CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank, Bernie Baudreau. Now joining us on the phone is Diane Whitmore Schonzenbach, director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. Diane, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for having me. Can we look at a snapshot of of the nation? What are we seeing um, across the country in relation to food insecurity? Sure. Well, we've seen that as after the Great Recession, during the Great Recession, there was a spike in food insecurity, and it hasn't really come down. You know, even though the economy has picked up steam, um, still a lot of lower income and lower middle income families are really struggling to get by. Part of that is because you know there are increasing prices of rent. Uh, you know, wages have been stagnant and so on. And, you know, as budgets get tighter and tighter, people have a harder time affording their basic needs like food. Are there certain regions of the U.S. that are more affected by food insecurity than others? Food insecurity is well distributed across the United States. There in Connecticut, you've got um, a rate that's approximately average um, to the, the national average. It's a little bit worse in the South. But in particular, I'd be worried about people in the Northeast because that's where we've seen really the largest spikes in housing costs. And so, you know, as housing gobbles up more and more of families' incomes, they have less to spend on other things. And so I, I'd be particularly worried about the Northeast um, moving forward. Um, we, were, we were able to hear a personal story from a Connecticut resident about how she lost her job during the recession, has una- been able to find work. Um, and, and so often she says, you know, they kind of cobble things together and find programs in the community that help them. But you mentioned that when resources are getting slimmer and slimmer, I mean, how is this problem, how can this problem be addressed? I mean, we're, it, this is a very difficult policy challenge, um, in part because, as Renee shared in her story, uh, they had too high of an income to qualify for lots of programs that are out there, like SNAP, which serves about one in every eight Americans, and it's you know the backbone of our food security, uh, you know the safety net. But a lot of people who are suffering from food insecurity are not are not qualifying for that. Uh, certainly, uh, you know local organizations like Masters Mana, like the Connecticut Food Bank, are doing doing great work in this area. But you know money is tight and the need is great. And we really do need to be stepping up with public policies to to help these families that are are being left out of the safety net today. And the Hamilton Project, um, I know you're looking at data, but what are some policy recommendations that that your organization has? Well, so one thing that I think is um, in dire need of happening is is increasing access to food over the summertime for children. So I think now is a perfect time to be talking about food insecurity because during the summer months when children don't have access to school meals, uh, rates of food insecurity spike. And I imagine that they see that at, at the food banks um, in Connecticut as well. Something that has been proposed, and I think it's, it's prime time to do this, is to provide extra benefits um, to families when they lose those school meals during the summertime. So that would be my number one, number one recommendation. 
I wanted to turn to Bernie Bodro, CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank. Did you want to react to what Renee, um, Diane is saying? Yeah, I think, Diane, you're saying all the, you know, everything that's very true. And I think um, kind of the rhinoceros in the living room, if you want to call it that, is, you know, low wages and, and poverty really drives hunger. And, um, you know, while we can have a robust system of getting uh, donated food and purchased food and, and take advantage of the government nutrition programs, you know, if work has to pay more. I mean, um, and that has to be challenged nationally. It's not unique to Connecticut that, you know, the, you know, the ability for people to kind of work full time and, and live um, has gotten more difficult over time. Wages have not inflated. And if we want to seriously uh, drop the, the hunger percentage and make sure that experience on hunger or food insecurity is a temporary thing while people can get back on their feet, the getting back on your feet is being able to earn enough uh, income to be able to not be dependent on a system. And I think let's not lose sight of that. That's um, really an important public policy issue that quite often people don't like to talk about. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about food insecurity in our country. I wanted to read a tweet that we received from a listener um, who writes, Cooking from scratch is a money pit. Box foods are cheaper for most people. I'm afraid it's contributing to obesity. Uh, Diane, so um, you know, we do know that there's an obesity epidemic in this country as well. So how do we uh, make sure that people have enough to eat and it's not just the cheap, uh, over-processed food? Sure. Just for context, SNAP benefits are about $4.50 per person per day. So if you think about what it would take to make ends meet to feed your family on a budget like that, it's kind of, uh, it'll give you pause, right? Uh, nobody c can do that very easily. And so just like the tweeter <laughs> suggested, that means that people rely on low-cost forms of, forms of food consumption. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, the Hamilton Project just proposed uh, last month was we think that especially because more people are working and combining work with uh, SNAP receipts, that it's high time to increase the value of SNAP benefits. Um, our estimates suggest that a 20% increase in SNAP benefits would uh, would really make a difference and would improve the quality of what people eat. You know, this basically comes down to economics, that when people have more money to spend, they don't need to rely on those high-density, cheap calories, and that they're more likely to eat fruits and vegetables and the foods that we know that are good for them. And what you were talking about, Diane, is that what's called modernizing SNAP benefits? That's exactly okay. right. Uh, we had an event last month where we uh, released a policy proposal about ways to improve the SNAP program called Modernizing SNAP Benefits. Now, I thought I read earlier this year that um, there are issues with the people that will become eligible for SNAP due to, um, I think, a three-month limit for people who are unemployed, if they're unable to find work, they're un they and they can't um, they can't then get uh, SNAP benefits. Do you know anything about that? Yes, that's right. So we have strict time limits on adults who don't have any children in the household. So they're working age adults; they're not disabled, and these are very very low income individuals. They don't really have access to other safety net benefits. Uh, they're getting, um, on average, you know, very modest amounts of SNAP benefits. If you were relying only on SNAP benefits, your consumption level would be about 20% of the poverty line. So these are very, very meager benefits. Uh, nonetheless, now that the economy has, uh, you know, the unemployment rate has dropped, they've reinstituted time limits and said to those um, single adults without, without children, 
you know, if you don't find a job within three months, even if you're looking for a job, even if there are no jobs to be had, but you're looking for a job, you still are time limited off of SNAP within three months. So we think that this is going to cause great hardship to, to a lot of individuals. Well, uh, Diane Whitmore Schanzenbach, director of the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. We're almost out of time. I do want to thank you um, for calling in and giving us your perspective. We're going to have a link to uh, the work that the Hamilton Project does on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I wanted to turn to Bernie Baudreau, again, CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank. We just have two minutes, Bernie. If people wanted to find out more information about you know, how they can be helped or how their communities could help people in need, where do they go? Well, I mean, go to our website, the Connecticut Food Bank's website, or, or go to FoodShare's website. FoodShare serves uh, Tolland County and, and Hartford County, and um, Connecticut Food Bank serves the rest of the state. Um, and, you know, we're looking for people to kind of join join this fight. Uh, if you don't contribute now to, these, uh, to our organizations, uh, please consider that, and please consider, you know, being an advocate for the kinds of things that Diane was talking about. And, um, you know, Connecticut as a state could contribute more to um, the Nutrition Assistance Program. The Connecticut Nutrition Assistance Program is generous, but it could be much more generous. Uh, We need the food supply uh, to help people through these tough times. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on the program, and we hope everyone will join us. That's Bernie Bodro, again, CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank. We'll continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>